A reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verses 5 through 13. Then I, Daniel, looked, and two others appeared, one standing on the bank of the stream and one on the other. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was upstream, How long shall it be until the end of these wonders? The man clothed in linen who was upstream raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I I heard him swear by the one who lives forever that it would be for a time, two times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be accomplished. I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are to remain secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked shall continue to act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that desolates is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Happy are those who persevere and attain the 1,335 days, but you go your way and rest. You shall rise for your reward at the end of the days. And there we have it. So I'm excited to stand up here this morning because I believe that I'm now completing my storyline bingo chart uh, in that I have led worship. I've done welcome, confession and grace, communion and thanksgiving, sending, but this is my first time doing the message. Uh, of course, we, we know that the free square is bring a guest on the day storyline does something weird. <laughs> We've all checked that one. <laughs> and so... <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're not weird enough. That's we need to lean into it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So uh it's been a couple of weeks since we've been with you guys. We were sick and then out of town at Disney. And uh, I will confess, a lot of this uh, message today came together as I was sitting crisscross on the bathroom floor of our hotel room after the girls had gone to bed. And so an alternative working title uh, for this was Shower Thoughts After a Full Day at an Amusement Park. <laughs> so, uh, you know, here we go. We have the final section of Daniel here. Uh, and I have to say, I hadn't overall expected to enjoy our series on Daniel as much as I have. Uh, as we said just a moment ago, I never thought I'd say, thank goodness we're in Daniel <laughs> in our reading. Uh, and now we've come to the end. This is the final section uh, of Daniel, and it's kind of a weird uh, section to unpack today. And so what I really want to cover is to review this final passage and propose a framework for reading that has been meaningful to me and walk through an example there. And then I want to wrap up uh, or start our wrap up process. I know we've got, I asked Charles, I was like, am I the final one to preach on Daniel? Because if I have to land the plane, I'm going to need to prepare for that. <laughs> Thankfully, we've got one more, one more series, uh, one more message on Daniel next week. So I'm going to just prepare for our final descent and uh, we'll be landing next week. <laughs> 
And so I do want to spend some time as a group just discussing what we've shared and discerned in our journey through Daniel. Got some peanut gallery in the back. So the passage that uh, Ben preached on last week uh, through chapter 12, verse 4, really makes for a pretty good ending to the book. We've got uh, the angel Michael, we've got the resurrection vision, and this whole thing kind of comes together nicely. Uh, and then we've got sort of these weird last seven or so verses uh, bolted on to the end, um, which is kind of this postscript that we get in Daniel. Uh, Daniel's still standing on the riverbank uh, where he's been for several chapters now. And our friend in the linen is still upstream or hovering over the waters, depending on which translation you uh, connect with there. And there are some scholars who consider that this may have been an addition to the original material. And verses 11 and 12, where it's talking about the number of days and happier those who make it to that period, may have been an attempt to gloss over some of the original predictions that did not come true. Certainly, these verses seem to have knowledge of events dating after 164 BCE that the previous chapters and verses do not. And so a quick summary, I thought this was insightful uh, to me at least, a quick summary of the history and how those verses may fit in. So Antiochus Epiphanes, that we've been talking a lot about in this series, he died in late 164 BCE. And his son Antiochus V wrote a letter, became king uh, after him, and wrote a letter sometime late 164, early 163, announcing his father's death and restoring the Jews their right to worship at the temple. So they they got what they wanted. This was the typical practice of the Seleucid Empire was to allow the, the local people to continue to observe their religious traditions. But word travels slowly in the ancient world, and before the news of any of that reaches uh, the Jews, uh, they have already rallied their strength because of the... Um, the abominations that they've suffered in their temple and basically much of the theme of Daniel. And they've said enough is enough. And they have rallied around Judas Maccabeus and gained enough strength to besiege the Acra in Jerusalem. And they've won some early victories there, um, thinking that they are going to, by bloodshed and battle, take uh, what they believe is rightfully theirs. And it's possible that this is the time frame when these verses of Daniel were written, um, that the early successes uh, in these this campaign to retake Jerusalem emboldened the author of Daniel chapter 12, 5 through 11 to predict in early 163 BCE, the total collapse of the Seleucid Empire uh, was within reach by later that year. We had this transitional moment. The old king has died. They weren't sure who was going to be the new king. They were winning some battles. These were heady times um, in Israel. And so the author of this postscript dared to imagine that all foreign rule over Israel would end soon and to make this prediction that the reign of God would return to a restored and renewed Israel. The author even gave dates. Uh, when you go back and you look at those thousand, et cetera, days, scholars can backdate and work within that to estimate. They're talking probably June of 163 and August of 163 for when this would all be carried out, which those who persevere, uh, as we know in the prophecy, would be fortunate enough to witness. 
And that's really how the curtain closes, and we end this postscript to the book of Daniel. And so this timeline makes sense um, if we fit it, uh, again, to that timeline. Certainly there are other opinions. But if that's what was meant in the text, the original readers of Daniel were no doubt disappointed uh, because none of those events came to pass. In fact, rather the opposite. After those few initial setbacks uh, for the Seleucid Empire, where the Jews won some initial battles, the new king, Antiochus V, uh, rallied together, amassed a great army, and came in and swept through and soundly defeated the Jews, uh, and he successfully retook Jerusalem. A remnant of the resistance movement fled to hide in the mountains, but was ultimately scattered. And so this ultimate triumph of God that was prophesied here at the end of Daniel would not yet be manifest, and the wait for the end would have to continue uh, through the centuries, really all the way until today. And so now that we're wrapping up this series, what do we do with this book of Daniel? There's been a recurring theme for me over the last year, uh, which I haven't really asked for, but keeps bringing itself into my life. And so I'm trying to learn to embrace it. And that is looking afresh at things that I had considered non-controversial. And then by having them pushed back upon me, realizing I had chosen to just set them down and stop looking at them, but never actually address them. And so that absence of, of looking at something is different than the process of having an active decision or resolution to it. Um, this goes further back than a year ago, but I was reminded of the process of Storyline deciding to become an affirming church. Uh, my first thought was, of course, sounds good. And then the more I sat down for a moment and unpacked that, I was like, okay, yeah, I think so. But okay, we're going to like put it on our website. And when people ask us this question, we're going to say yes. And there's going to be people that like that and don't like that. And how are we going to interact with that? And I was thankful for the process that we had um, from our leadership group uh, with Tommy and Melinda Ballard walking through and unpacking what that meant. Um, and so I realized for myself, at least, there's this temptation to say, sure, sounds good, and want to set it aside there. Um, but to take some time to unpack and process, I think, is a key part of spiritual discernment. Uh, another more recent, for me, experience with that was reading Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark by Janet Kellogg-Gray that came out last year. And I confess when I picked it up, um, it was, uh, for Megan, who knows her, it was when Laura Dalton uh, posted about it on social media. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, well, um, you know, this will be maybe a fun way to talk to your kids about evolution and Genesis and the Bible. And then I got into it and I was like, I don't think I ever fully resolved this. I didn't consider the intersection of evolution and Genesis 1 through 11 controversial in my mind. But then I was like, Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that or that either. And so it's been a good process for me of understanding how to love uh, something like Genesis or I'll hold up Daniel here as an example as well, while also loving what we know about history, about modern science and things like that. And can I hold both of those in tension uh, uh, with my beliefs? And so... um from that study, I came across Janet cites a book called Adam and the Genome uh, that she speaks of as, as pretty influential in her book. And so I thought, okay, well, let's keep going. And so I picked that one up as well. And that book is, is written by 
an evolutionary biologist and Christian, uh, Dennis Venema, and professor of theology, Scott McKnight. And I've got plenty to talk about. We'll have to chat another time about uh, uh, their views on Genesis and, and some interesting observations there. But within that book, Scott holds up what he cites as his four principles for reading scripture. And it's a framework for how he um, unpacks and reads scripture, especially in light of the connection between science uh, and ancient scriptures. And so I want to talk about those today and actually overlay those a little bit on our time with Daniel. And so those four principles are respect, honesty, sensitivity to the students, and the primacy of scripture or prima scriptura. There we have it on our screen there. So if you'll hang in there with me, I want to define these um, each kind of based on some of what they shared. And then we'll, as I said, lay those over Daniel. So respect is to understand what someone is telling us, or is that to understand what someone is telling us? We must respect that person as a person. We must respect a person's speech, and we must do our best to understand that person's speech from that person's context. Part of respecting the text is to understand it as it was designed for the ancient Near Eastern culture. Our principle of honesty about that, Scott says, we need to be honest about two things, the Bible and science. As a professor, I teach my students this method, face the facts and do not fear the facts. Honesty requires us to face the facts that the Bible really does make it look like Adam and Eve are humans from whom we all descend. But scientists are going to tell us straight away that Adam and Eve themselves had ancestors with fossil evidence of those who came millions of years before them. What we need from both sides of the argument is honesty. Fearless honesty about what the texts and academic history actually say, honesty about what they don't say, and perhaps most of all, honesty about what each permits the thinker to conclude. Regarding sensitivity to the students, uh, this one's a bit wordy, but I loved it, so this spoke to me, so hang in there with me. This is the principle that we shouldn't teach our religious beliefs with such certainty that our young and our dedicated followers are scandalized when they first encounter alternative viewpoints and doubt. We must learn to embrace metaphor and wonder and to avoid holding on to certain things too tightly. As Scott says, it works like this. Many Christians grow up with a view of scripture as inerrant. And that means for them, generally, that it is not only true, but also more or less magically true. True beyond its time, true when everything else says something else. Connected to this view of inerrancy is a view of Bible reading that takes the sound Christian idea that the Bible's message is clear to any able-minded Bible reader and ratchets it up one notch so that the Bible reader thinks whatever I see in the Bible is what the Bible is saying. And when one's interpretation of the scripture becomes as infallible as the Bible itself, giving in even one inch feels like the first step towards apostasy. So. As we hold these things together, we have to consider the student, uh, sensitivity to the student and the learner as part of our, our lens for interpreting. And the final one, the primacy of scripture, uh, is that in the midst of our sensitivity to and honesty for the scripture, we can still read from a perspective of prima scriptura, that is to affirm, first of all, what the Bible says. 
I believe in a past message from a while back, we've done some unpacking around prima scriptura versus sola scriptura uh, and the role of tradition and discernment uh, in that. I'm not going to unpack all of that today. <laughs> but for our purposes of today, I'll further define it as to say, part of this is to understand the Bible as a developing narrative, a story about the wrestling with the nature of God and of mankind. We can read the Bible with the spirit of interpreting it first as the unveiling of God's story with mankind while still accepting the interaction between the Bible and culture, both ancient culture and our modern culture. So there's our four principles, respect, honesty, sensitivity, and primacy. Um, And the more I reflect on these principles, the more I enjoy unpacking them in new contexts. This has been meaningful for me both in this phase of deconstruction, but as I seek to find a new foundation for my reconstruction, uh, to read the scriptures in this way. They allow me to still love the stories from Jesus and Daniel while feeling like I'm maturing in my understanding as well. So let's reflect a little bit on how that applies to our study of Daniel this fall. In the tradition that I grew up in, Daniel was taught mostly in a literal sense. The stories you could teach in Sunday school got most of the precedence, the lion's den and burning furnaces and feet of clay. And then there's the weird part with prophecy at the end, uh, which we didn't look at too much, but it was, I think, generally taken as a literal 5th century writing sense uh, that was remarkably accurate to a certain point. But challenges arise um, when we look at it through this lens, for example, One challenge to a conventional interpretation of Daniel is how God keeps telling him to keep the words secret and the books sealed. What's up with that? (laughs) Why does he keep doing that? So, Megan, I'm glad you're here today because I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Sometime around the start of the 20, you'll see why in a second. Uh, Sometime around the start of the 2010 decade, uh, modern writers started to define what could be called the cell phone problem. What historically had worked in narrative structure to create meaningful tension, peril, or other plot development in a story now becomes rather neutered if the character could just pull out a cell phone and call for help or Google the answer. Imagine Juliet simply pulling out her cell phone and texting Romeo her plans for the evening. It's hard to make a double suicide around misconception (laughs) work (laughs) if that were the case. But this is the problem for the modern writer. You can't ignore the existence of cell phones. That feels cheesy. Um, And yet the cell phone shouldn't magically solve all the problems either. That's too convenient. And so it's left to the writer to solve the cell phone problem in a way that builds tension in the plot, but also resolves itself in a way that is believable to the reader. Is that a fair observation of the problems, Megan? (laughs) There you go. So that's one legitimate resolution. That's why so many of our modern stuff, it's pre-2003. <laughs> you could have the phone run out of batteries. It could be out of range. There's certain things, but all of those run the risk of being a little bit cheesy. So again, we've got this tension of how do we solve the cell phone problem. So I'll postulate today that I think what we have in Daniel is a sort of cell phone problem. If the prophecies were known from the 5th century time of the historical Daniel, then that creates problems as to why no one did anything about their fates. So instead, we use a literary device, sealing up the scrolls, to avoid our cell phone problem 
of why this remarkably accurate prediction of the future is just now coming to light. A principle of honesty compels us to admit that a literal interpretation here is a bit problematic. A principle of respect asks us to consider how the second century BCE Jewish reader, that is in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, would have heard this text and what this narrative device would have meant to them within their context. So do we throw out the book or do we peer deeper to find a new way to fall in love with God's story? Principles of sensitivity and primacy of scripture compel us to find new meaning in the scriptures when our conventional understandings of it break down. So I got to this point and I said, let's reflect on some of the things that we've said in our time in Daniel, some of the observations that we've made. Ben said last week about the resurrection narrative in chapter 12. The anticipation of the resurrection, I don't think is the author's primary concern, but more an articulation of what it means to truly live, is to not live by the powers and principalities of Antiochus, but to live by the powers and rhythms of God, to ask, in what way do I need to order my life so that I'm living in wisdom? Sarah told us to remember your PB&J. That sometimes when there's nothing you can do, maybe walking up a mountain is the best course of action as a way of saying, I'm still here. What can I do to just exist and to connect with God and not give up? To practice gratitude as a way of connecting when we feel bereft to remember his mercies and thankfulness. Valerie observed the communal aspects of liturgical prayer through centuries and generations and a purpose of the Bible being to say, I see you, that the worst way to experience trauma is to experience it without an empathetic witness. And sometimes as the church, our role is to sit in silence and say, I saw that to those experiencing trauma and suffering. Talked a lot about capitalism, mostly bad. I took a break somewhere in there to buy some West Elm furniture that then felt guilty about. But overall, these observations from our time in Daniel um, have me enjoying, as I said before, this series way more than I thought I would when we went back to this uh, Old Testament uh, book that I confess I hadn't spent a lot of time in recently. For me, it gives me a new framework for looking at the scriptures when my old one breaks down. And it moves me from a place of Bible knowledge, where I think I was before, memorizing facts and stories to a place of religious fluency in the practice of spiritual discipline. And that's a place of kingdom work and a vision for the Bible that I can get by. So I'd like to now open it up to everybody as we kind of reflect and end our time today. Um, when we think about those four principles, respect, honesty, sensitivity, primacy, uh, let me ask if there's a moment that stands out to you in our time in Daniel that, ta- that challenged you to see the scriptures in a new way. Absolutely. So the question, to phrase it slightly differently, is 
when we think about uh, the different moments in our study of Daniel, whether it was, um, you know, talking about the stories and I, I came across, I reflected on, Sarah reminded me, was it chiasm? Is that the, the frame story that goes in and goes back out? Um, when we look at ways of interpreting the uh, more narrative stories of Daniel, then we've had our unpacking of the prophecies, which I didn't have high expectations of. They just felt weird to me, and I've enjoyed the insights that uh, our our group has brought during those weeks. Um, are there moments in that that stand out to you uh, of things that were um, new uh, or caused you to see the scripture uh, afresh in a new way that maybe you haven't before? I think it's live. I don't, uh, I don't know if it's a single moment, but it's been a recurring theme. Uh, and sort of the sensitivity, well, really some measure of all four get at it, but the, how necessary a posture of grace is hmm. towards the text, towards ourselves and reading the text, towards our own context. Um, both grace and figuring out a really complicated narrative and all the different images, but also just how hard life is Mm -hmm. uh, and the ways in which we're all stumbling both in second century BCE and today trying to make sense, doing the next thing. uh, It just goes a long way to be kind to ourselves and to trust that's the posture God takes towards us as we're trying to sort of muddle through all of this and figure out what the next day looks like. That's, uh, yeah, um, with every conversation, I think Sarah's, um, sometimes just climbing and the PBJ story hit home and captured that for me, but it's been throughout, uh, sort of like do the next thing mm-hmm. and be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. However, it turns out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's easy to come in, uh, you know, as a heavy handed critic and just start chopping things apart and breaking it and. One of the things that I appreciate about, uh, for me, what was meaningful about these principles is it reminds me to to look deeper and to look with del- some delicacy as to what's going on and realize that things were messy a couple thousand years ago, just like they're messy today. Uh, we certainly don't have the answers to everything. Thank you. Um, for me, I think the principle that speaks to me the most right now is primacy, the the scripture is unveiling God's story, that part of it. Cause I have kind of taken a break from the Bible for a while. Just didn't want anything to do with it. Didn't want to think about it. Um, didn't want to investigate it anymore. And which I think I needed to do for a time, but it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm this Daniel study and, um, the the centerpiece conference that I just went to, um, where I ended up going to a bunch of stuff about hermeneutics, which I wasn't thinking I was gonna pick those <laughs> um topics, but I don't know, I think that was really good for me to remind me, oh yeah, there is still like truth in the Bible. <laughs> and like you can you can really find things in there that can help you today. And just um it was really encouraging at the conference just to learn about the different ways people are reading the Bible, um, which is where I've been kind of leaning towards, but it was nice to hear 
other people talk about it. Um, and so, yeah, it just reminds me that yes, scripture is a part of God's story and I, uh, need to look into it more and don't just discount it <laughs> like I, like I had before. Oh, yeah. I get that. And yeah, I mean, I think I was in a similar place in a lot of ways of just, you know, there were things in context that I didn't understand or my beliefs had moved in a certain direction. And as I said earlier, I just sort of set those to the side, um, which is a, a, you know, the difference between a negative piece, a piece without a resolution and a, a positive piece, a piece that's intentional and finds a path forward. Yeah, I think one of the things that I thought was interesting was, I think Ted said that the, you know, the book was written for people in crisis, or what did we, what is it, is that the right right, right word, crisis, people going through a crisis, or, yeah. or conflict, uh, yeah. or, like written to give hope in the midst of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was really interesting because I know that, like, how we read scripture was not the crisis he was talking about, <laughs> But I found it really interesting as we've all read it and talked about it. We're not just, we're not just referencing the crisis of, oh, it's been a really hard few years for the world. We're referencing the crisis of how do we read the Bible and what do I think about these stories and how do these stories apply? And it's like, we've been through the stories. We've been finding hope in a crisis. And I don't, it's just this weird, like spirally. I just, it it's just another example to me of the way the Bible is alive in a way that, you know, it being literal does just does not capture, like it's alive and moving. Mm-hmm. Um. A lot of thoughts. <laughs> Curious, how do you guys uh, interact with that third principle of sensitivity to the student? Uh, I have to say that one, uh, and, and this is a whole chapter that he unpacks a lot more of when he goes through the four, uh, was a little bit triggering to me of some past trauma of moments where I felt sort of a, a shattering of some of the rigidity uh, of the way I've held certain things in the past. Uh, and so this idea, especially when I think about teaching my kids, our kids of our community, um, but even just teaching myself uh, and the adults as we're walking, that's why um, I like to call it the, the student of the text, whether you're four or 40, you know, um, has, I think is relative here. And so considering the students as we frame our teachings, as we frame our interpretations of how that is received, how we can give them nourishment at each step. Um, yeah, that was a new thing for me to, to consider that, that expressly stated, um, but I think it's important. Yeah. I, I think you were kind of asking a question about sensitivity there. Yeah. And then I kind of just kept talking and um, didn't stop. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate what you shared about that because it really grabbed my attention. I hadn't had like a word or like to apply to it, but I know it's something like Sarah and I do like when. Sean or even ask us like really hard questions. 
I frequently think back to like the answer that I would have received as a kid. And then I usually go a different way, which is more like, okay, well, some people believe this, some people believe that. Your mom and I kind of lean toward this way. What do you think? Um, because I, yeah, I, I see the harm of like being surprised or like not knowing how, not of like encountering other thoughts and suddenly being, you know, scandalized. Um, I see the pain and damage in that. And I, I hope to avoid that with our kids. So. Um, I really like the principle of sensitivity. It's something I think about a lot with the kids. Um, I think it's really important for us to say to like the kid, like our kids, like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure. Or what do you think? Or I don't know. Some people think this, some people think that. And I think what's scary about sensitivity is that it is releasing all like all ideas of control, right? Because if I can give an exact answer and I can get For example, in a parent-child relationship, I can get the child to recite back that exact answer that can make me feel like, oh, they're good. They know God like how I know God, which means they're good. But really, uh, our whole goal as teachers, as parents, is letting them discover who God is for them. And that may look very different from how it is for us. And I, I love the idea of are like, I think about our kids and storyline. I love the idea of them being like, oh, it's okay to be like, I think this, I don't know. Or this is really easy for me to believe. This is really hard for me to believe. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> um, anyways, I, I love this principle. <laughs> Megan, then Charles in the back. Oh. Um, for me, I was thinking about a lo- most of us have like deconstructed and are reconstructing. And um, I think the principle of sensitivity is really important for the the ways we use to read the Bible and for the people who still read the Bible that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was something I came away um, with the Centerpiece Conference as I really need to hold grace for, uh, because for a long time, I've just been like, well, why don't they read it that way? Come on, like get with the program. (laughs) Um, and you know, I need to have grace for them and that they might never change the way that they read the Bible. But, um, also I think just asking P instead of preaching to people, like, this is how you should read the Bible now, by the way. Um, just asking them, well, why is it this way? Why do you like asking them more questions? Mm-hmm. And I think just trying to understand, well, why, why have you read the Bible this way from birth to now? Like, what is it that is interesting to you or comforting to you? Um, so I, I think that is an area that I know I need to work on more, um, to have sensitivity for people who read the Bible very differently from me. 
passing the mic back to Charles, I'll say I'm always surprised, or I guess I shouldn't be surprised by how comfortable it is to slip back into dualistic thinking or us versus them mentality. It feels good. It feels certain. It feels like foundation under our feet. Uh, and yet it leads us to so many damaging places because it's tricky to say, I don't know, it's complicated and there may be multiple paths to the right answer. Uh, that doesn't grab the headlines in quite the same way. Uh, so it's a practice. Um, so um, I have a personal thought that just uh, got prompted by this conversation about sensitivity. And then I want to read John's comments about this conversation too. Uh, I, he- I heard somebody recently described that, uh, unexpectedly as a, a fundamentalist, but like as a progressive fundamentalist. And I think the, the principle of sensitivity keeps us from being progressive fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. Just, just fundamental, fundamentalism is about the way we hold our beliefs, right? Like mm-hmm. the rigidity and certitude with which we hold something and sensitivity helps us to be open and humble. And I think that that posture is what keeps our kiddos from being scandalized when they grow up and they realize that, Oh, maybe mom and dad didn't have it all together. Maybe, you know, they, um, maybe this isn't as certain as I thought it was or whatever. So anyway, that was an interesting connection I was making in my, my brain space to that principle. Mm. Um, John Oliver says, uh, what I heard the speakers you all talking about was bridging the gap from deconstruction to reconstructions. And then this is made more tricky as the parents are at the same time in the construction stage for the kids. Parents and teachers must, must tread the tension between indoctrination and education. The uniqueness and great value of storyline is that doubts are accepted and not shamed. Life is packed with dealing with uncertainty and certainty. I try not to let my existential breakdowns impact my parenting too greatly. (laughs) Uh, John, that was really well said. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I've, uh, this sensitivity piece has been really a helpful frame for me with uh, conversations around our LGBTQ neighbors with folks who are not open and affirming. Um, Both I'm I'm thinking of conversation uh, I had recently with my sister and then also a couple colleagues, them knowing my position is open and affirming. Um, I'm, I'm trying to open all those conversations by saying I didn't get here in one conversation. It's been a really, really long years, years process. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not, I'm, I don't think we're going to, you're going to understand or agree in one conversation, Mm -hmm. which is both has been both the way to frame the, to set level, set the expectations uh, that it's not going to be a, a a match where we compare Bible verses, but it's also, it's, it's been a, it's a confession and a reminder for myself uh, that I can't convince them in one conversation mm-hmm. that it's a commitment needs to be a commitment on my part to walk with them in gracious ways as I had teachers and neighbors and friends who walked with me as I was trying to find my way. Mm-hmm. And so it's both opening up space for this is going to be a long process and a commitment to that long process 
which I'm not always interested in. If I'm, if I'm honest, like I want a really quick, easy answer Mm -hmm. quickly. Um, but it's, that's hard. And then you expand that to then all the other issues, um, which I don't have the same kind of sensitivity towards, but I'm, I'm working on it. Um, when we were recording stories with, um, like our friends that spoke Irish or other things, but I remember one time this one friend was recording a story, um, where Jesus like tells some of the disciples to like leave their nets on the shore and to follow him. And the friend was recording and he was like, Jesus is the worst. I mean, is this really what he wants us to do? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, He's telling them to leave their family. They're supposed to take care of their family. Who's going to take care of their their parents if they leave? And he's like, I can't believe that a Christian, that this is what we should do as Christians. He's like, as Christians, you're supposed to take care of your family. And like, to me, it just had not even really computed when I was like reading that story. It I, it computed that they were leaving their livelihood, but not that they were leaving their family. Mm-hmm. And that I think in that moment, and I've thought about that a lot since, it's so hard to, it's so hard for us to know what we don't know. When someone else reads a Bible story, they do not see what we see. And it's so hard to understand that because we're so steeped in our own culture and the way we view things that like, it's almost incomprehensible to us that someone else might have a different viewpoint. And like the way that he did not comprehend the way I saw the story and that I did not comprehend the way he saw the story just stuck with me for a long, I mean, it stuck with me for a long time and just made me realize, well, I really don't know what someone else is thinking when they read a story like we we've been taught that we can you know drill it into people's heads what things actually mean but like we don't know i mean it it's staggering how much we don't understand when we're reading do you know what i mean like it um occasionally the curtain gets pulled back and then we're like oh wow i didn't know that but it's like um yeah it's hard to see how much we don't understand and so it's like we have to have be sensitive um, that's being sensitive is acknowledging that we do not know everything. Yeah, that's a tough, isn't that, if somebody's got a better grasp of the verse, it's loosely coming to my mind when Jesus basically says, you know, whoever doesn't, isn't ready to disown their mother or their brother, you know, is not my follower. Um, something to that effect as I stand at the pulpit and paraphrase the Bible. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a tough verse. Um, and especially if you're encountering this in a new way, uh, you know, I, I don't know that that's one I may need to go back and unpack a little bit. Cause I've sort of set to the side of yeah, it's Jesus, you know, having a rah, rah moment. And, or even our new Testament text this morning about marriage. Yeah. Like, thank yeah. goodness we don't have to talk about that today. Right. That one's going to be left on the shelf for a little longer. Yep. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yeah. Sensitivity is not just uh, a gracious, hospitable posture towards others, but sensitivity as an openness to discover your, yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't Sarah until you were reflecting, thinking of that dual nature of it. It's not just causing, you don't want to cause harm, but you also want to remain open for something that you have yet to see or discover, mm-hmm. which is a great, uh, two way play mm-hmm. on that. I like that. Indeed. 
Um, I'm just realizing that reinterpreting the Bible or re-understanding it um, as, you know, like, I assume most of us grew up in this black and white, like, this is how it is. This is the inerrant word of God. And, um, and it, like, looking at things again and allowing people to say, what, why would, why would you have to abandon your family? Who, what, what kind of Christian would do that? Um, being like, oh my gosh, you're right. I didn't think about that. Uh, it makes me think of, you know, like understanding my own family system as like, my family's the best until I start getting older and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, like, this is not good. (laughs) You know, like, oh, my family system. Wow. There's a lot of things to unpack here. And like, you know, how do I acknowledge, you know, like the ways in which my parents were incapable and failed me and the ways in which they loved and supported me and hold both of those as true mm-hmm. is the same way that I hold, mm-hmm. you know, stories in the Bible that, you know, it's like, that's bullshit. You know, like that doesn't make sense that, you know, that's horrible. Um, with like, there's actually some valuable stuff in there that's good and great and being willing to hold both of those things as true. <laughs> For sure. I hope those, uh, ever since I read those, uh, it's been a couple months ago now. It's always been sort of sticky in my brain, uh, thinking about those. And, and for me, at least, that's been an impactful way to sort of come back to a tool for grounding myself, uh, in, in how I'm reading the scripture, uh, especially when I get frustrated with my default view, which is to perceive a certain rigidity in the text. Um, you know, the resurrection narrative in chapter 12, um, I enjoyed what you had to say last week, Ben, when I went back and listened to the recording because we weren't there. Um, you know, of I, I initially read that and I was just like, here's yet another confusing resurrection narrative that says something different than the other resurrection narrative say, and which one is the one, are we all being, you know, resurrected or only some, who's good, who's bad, who's wicked, who's wise, what does this mean? Um, and that was, uh, you know, a jewel that, that we turned a little bit in that conversation to see it in a new way of, of what that meant, not as some, um, what is it, eschatological perception of it, but more of what does that mean in the way that I order my life today? Um, and, and I appreciated that. That was something new to me 